Welcome to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. In this series, we ask experts and thought leaders from around the globe, how do we build a more sustainable and inclusive world in this decade and beyond? Today, we're joined by a very special guest, the Right Honourable Nick Hurd. If we're to develop the kind of sustainable, inclusive economy, there's got to be a fundamental change in mindset both in the private sector and in government, to think, okay, we can't do this on our own. Ultimately, as you know, these things always come down to leadership in terms of having the right leadership at, at the right time. And we've seen in the United States, for example, where that can go terribly wrong. Arguably, we've left it too late, but we are now aware, we are the generation that cannot say we didn't know. Nick started his career in the private sector and then spent 14 years as a Conservative Member of Parliament in the UK. He was a minister in five different departments, including Minister for Civil Society, where he launched the National Citizen Service and Big Society Capital. He was a Minister for International Development and then also a Minister for Climate Change and Industry. And in fact, his work on climate change helped him win the coveted Parliamentarian of the Year Award in 2016. Since leaving government, Nick's gone on to chair the Access Foundation for Social Investment, the G7 Impact Task Force, and to advise a number of highly impactful companies. So he's almost uniquely well-placed to talk about the role of government, the intersection of government and the private sector, how international bodies should play a part, and then also to reflect on what was achieved or not achieved at COP27 in Egypt. Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've clearly been in government for a long period. You were at the coalface in key ministerial roles. What do you think are the most effective and the most important things the UK government has done to promote this idea of a more sustainable and inclusive economy? So I think the I think role of of, of government is 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 enormously uh, important and and um, uh, not least in terms of its relationship with the private sector and the need and the opportunity to kind of align its incentives and get that cooperation working effectively. And we've seen some examples in the UK. The most sort of high profile example is the action that the British government took to kind of accelerate the progress of the offshore wind uh, uh, market in, in, in the UK. That was well thought through, that was well executed, it worked, uh, the policy objectives uh, uh, achieved and that's an important technology where the UK now has some competitive edge. On the social side, uh, you know, I point to the work that the British government did to kind of uh, build out the social investment market uh, in the queue. You, since then, you can track a journey through different administrations of, of systematically intervening to, on the demand side and the, sell, uh, and the supply side, to really accelerate the development of the social investment market. Even we're now in a situation where our social investment market has, has grown 10 times over 10 years, six billion pounds of, of, of new investment flowing into our social economy. Um, how much of that would have happened under the steam of the market? A bit, but nowhere near that uh, amount. So it, I think that just exemplifies the role that government can play in accelerating markets, uh, sending signals to markets around prioritization and, you know, an amazing toolbox <laughs> to kind of bring people together and, and, and accelerate activity, which is what we've got to do now. 
I know you talked about government working with the, the private sector there. Uh, and obviously you, you have a private sector background, so I guess it comes from naturally to you. It, it, was that something that was easy to achieve in government? Is that No, it's not. It's not. And and I'm 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 a bit I'm passionate about this because because as you said I've 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 worked in the private sector and and now still do, but I was in government for kind of almost a decade as as minister. I observed these two beasts in the jungle <laughs> trying to understand each other, and and the reality is they don't, and uh, and that's a problem because without that understanding and trust, it's very difficult to create the conditions whereby government and the private sector can work together productively. That's got to change. If we're to develop the kind of sustainable inclusive economy, there's got to be a fundamental change in mindset, both in the private sector and in government to think, okay, we can't do this on our own. Uh, Our incentives are increasingly aligned because of the risks that we're increasingly aware of. How do we work together more effectively? And that change of mindset I think is beginning to happen I don't think we're anywhere near building the platforms or the spaces where government and the private sector can really collaborate effectively uh, to to accelerate progress but that is what's got to happen very quickly over the next five years. Is the answer trying to get more people from the private sector into politics or is it about setting up more third spaces intermediary organizations? Speaking very frankly in my experience um, successful business people, private sector, do not flourish in politics. Um, I can think of very few examples of that. There's such different worlds and environments in which to work. And uh, uh, I, I think it is more about, as you suggest, um, uh, creating the, 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 the spaces where you know, proper conversations can take place and understanding can build. In the UK, for example, uh, you know, we have the, the Green Finance Institute, which does this extremely well. It brings together the market and policymakers to really work through problems uh, together. You know, for example, building coalitions around, okay, how do you facilitate private investment into the challenge of retrofitting old inefficient uh, buildings? It's those sort of processes um, uh, which, in my experience, really do help to build that sort of understanding and 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 trust. How important at a policy level is international cooperation? Clearly, these are not problems that we're going to solve on a country by country basis. Most of them don't respect boundaries, right? So, you know, climate change being the obvious example, there's no solution to that without uh, global uh, cooperation, and we can discuss the effectiveness of that but that's 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 a given but in other areas you know if the framing of this is a sustainable and inclusive economy i, I know from my experience as a as a minister at, at, at diffid and you know now working uh you know for a company called bbox that's trying to end energy poverty in sub-saharan africa that in pursuit of the key sdgs you know again we're not going to achieve those without global cooperation and we've got some fantastic models of that fantastic examples of international uh, collaboration that work but they're still rather the exception <laughs> rather than than the norm it feels like there's been a growing cynicism about foreign aid particularly in the uk in recent years how important do you think it is and how do we better make the case for it in my experience you know, really important. You know, I, I, I just know from having been a minister of DFID and what that facilitates in terms of international relationships with countries that actually really valued our commitments uh, to that country and 
our ability to invest in supporting uh, their their development and those those were the foundations of partnerships on which you know other strategic interests could be could be could be built yeah. but the the aid system can be smarter arguably a lot of aid is used to pay for activity with insufficient rigor around uh, outcomes and, and that's what i think has got to change uh, to sort of buttress the moral argument for investment in aid you know it, You're listening to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series about how we accelerate progress towards a more sustainable and inclusive world over the next decade. If you think about the mechanisms we currently have for that sort of international cooperation, how effective do you think they are at the moment? Are they fit for purpose? I think there's a very strong case for reform. If we recognise the fundamental truth that there is never going to be enough public money to achieve our goals, climate and development, then the fundamental exam question remains, as it has done for some time, is how then do we mobilize uh, the private capital at scale uh, in trillions uh, to work alongside government in achieving those uh, goals? And we know there's some tailwinds in favor in the sense of shifting mindsets in the private sector, growing interest in investing for impact uh, and making a, a, a contribution. Those needs to be harnessed. But we also know that in some of the areas where we need this investment to flow, where it's needed most, there are risks. And we have institutions with balance sheets that are capable of mitigating risk. We have a uh, you know, growing body of evidence around the tools, such as guarantees that uh, can be very effective in that. But the shareholders of these institutions have clearly got to send a clearer signal to the institutions that they need to change their priorities. They are too slow. They are too slow. I mean, it is shameful how long it takes to get money out of some of these global uh, climate funds, given the, the urgency of the, of, of, of the context. Uh, and we can beat up the people working in these institutions and, uh, and maybe some of the leadership there is, 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 is deficient. But ultimately, it comes back to the shareholders and the, and the donors and the messages uh, they send and the actions they take. And, and, and that's where ultimately the responsibility lies at this moment in time. Perhaps we can talk about COP. I know you've been to lots of them over the years. What about the one that's just finished in Egypt? Does it have to go down as a disappointment? So, I, I mean, I've been going to COP since 2005, you know, when I went into politics. Um, and I'm a COP sceptic. How could you not be? It's a process that, that, you know, goes at the pace of the least willing. And therefore, it's not going to be the process that drives the change at the pace that we need, but it is it is necessary. There's something weirdly magnificent about it in terms of the way that it kind of brings uh, the world uh, to, to to together. And I think one of the kind of most interesting developments is what builds around the COP in terms of what uh, you know the second track brings in terms of um, private sector initiatives, uh, regional partnerships. So I think there is. There is value in the COP process as long as we realise it's not it's not going to it's not in itself going to deliver uh, the, the the progress that we that we need. And this last COP was a really good you know example of what a mixed bag these events turn can can out can turn out to be. So the pluses is you see you know you know the recognition that at the heart of it, climate change is an issue of social justice. Uh, 
um, and, and we have to recognize that. And, and it's going to be very hard to make the progress now in terms of that global cooperation unless the global north recognizes uh, that. I think the COP was hugely significant in kind of opening the door on, on that. But on the negative side, you know, you know, clear failure in terms of raised ambition, which is kind of what people committed to in Glasgow. Only 30 countries came to COP with raised ambition. Very little evidence of implementation or rigor in terms of accountability for implementation and worrying signs of fading ambition in terms of one and a half degrees and uh, kind of uh, fading out of fossil fuels. So let's say you have the opportunity to talk to all the world leaders in the room at COP. What would be the, the things that you would advise them to focus on over the next five years? For me, it's about delivery, delivery, delivery. I mean, you know, I know from my experience in government, uh, some hard yards there that kind of working out what you want to do is only ever 10% of the challenge. Implementation, 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 90%. And it is relatively easy for a CEO or a minister, prime minister to announce a net zero commitment that other people are effectively going to implement. It's less clear to me what the delivery and implementation plans are at the corporate level or at, at the country level. My experience of countries is very few have a very clear idea of how they're going to do it. You know, in the UK, for example, it's possible to argue we've done that we've made good progress, but we've done the relatively easy stuff uh, in terms of changing our power system. Now we're getting into really difficult stuff like persuading people to change the way they heat their homes. You know, this is hard yards. So it's you know, I I, I don't expect um, there to be much more in terms of ambition. We've got 95% of the world economy committed in theory to net zero. So it's all about implementation, implementation, implementation. And I don't see enough evidence of seriousness around that. And I don't see an adequate framework of accountability for it. You know, we talked about the power of government, you know, arguably the most important thing that's happened in the climate change journey in the UK is the climate change bill that put into law the long-term targets and then broke those targets down into five-year budgets for which government is accountable to an independent body, the Committee on Climate Change. And we spent a lot, of, I was on the committee that kind of framed that bill. We spent a lot of time talking through these mechanics of accountability. Fast forward a few years, I'm the Minister for Climate Change. And I've got those wonderful people at Client Earth threatening to take me, uh, us to court for being too slow to publish our strategy for delivering carbon budget five or six, I can't remember which one, fantastically helpful for me because I could use it to get the system to say, no, this is serious. We've got to, we've got to, you know, we've got to get our act together uh, here. But without that framework of accountability, we wouldn't have been able to, to do it. Now, only a handful of countries in the world have a similar framework of accountability. So these targets are relatively easy to, to, to commit to, um, safe in the knowledge that you are not going to be the person doing it. <laughs> and, and, and that's a problem. Ultimately, and as you know, these things always come down to leadership, both in terms of the government and, 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 and the private sector. And that's a challenge because leadership rotates quite fast. I mean, ridiculously fast in, in recent experience in the UK, but even at the, at the border level in particular. So I've seen in the UK varying degrees of 
commitment to the climate agenda from prime ministers. The stars aligned back in 2005, six or wherever it was, when you know a, a Labour government brought forward the climate change bill and the Conservative Party under the leadership of David Cameron immediately embraced it and said, actually, we need to go further, further, further. You need the stars to align in terms of having the right leadership at, at, at the right time. And we've seen in the United States, for example, where that can go terribly wrong. Also, in terms of the sustainable development goals, you know, where are the, where are the big champions of, of, of those? Where, you know, where, where, where are the voices saying that, yes, it's all very well to invest in the environmental and the green, and we can get excited about that. And, 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 and but where's the investment in the social alongside it? Because these agendas, sustainable and inclusive, are absolutely linked. These, these transitions are not going to happen if we don't bring people with us on the journey. So the, the S, the commitment to the S alongside the E, we need more vocal champions around that. And then just lastly, in light of these not inconsiderable challenges that you've talked about, how optimistic are you that we can make real progress over the next five to 10 years? So I start with climate because, because actually the optimists can say, look at the progress we've made over the last five years or arguably since the Paris Agreement. It's really quite extraordinary what's happened in terms of driving down the price curve of, you know, the, the renewable energy uh, technologies in a way, actually, however one criticises the COP movement, we've got to a position where 95% of the world economy is committed to, to, to net zero. That's really quite extraordinary. But arguably 25 years too late. <laughs> you know, arguably we've left it too late for one and a half degrees, maybe even two degrees. But we are now aware, you know, we are the generation that cannot say we didn't know. But we are also the generation that has the tools at our disposal and are aware of our power to affect the probabilities because we're beginning to. So it's now really about our collective determination to push through the barriers to deploying clean energy at scale, which is the most immediate and pressing uh, issue, and get on with the process of electrifying our, our economies. And that's the fundamental question. Have we got the leadership across the political and corporate sector to really seize this opportunity and get into the weeds of the problems? The challenge is, is separating wood from trees and, and really focusing on, 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 on the priority issue, recognising we're only in government or in the CEO seat for so long and you know every day you've got to be asking yourself what's most important to me and how can we make a difference. You've been listening to Bridges 2030 Visions with me James Taylor. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did why not like, subscribe, share, download extra episodes or even leave us a nice five-star review somewhere. Thanks for joining us. 